Now, I don't know if you remember Marvin the Martian or not. I think you might have to be a certain age. Uh, but when I was a kid, he was a regular part of Looney Tunes on TV, uh, fronting up to Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck in his flying saucer ready to take over planet Earth. And there is apparently a protocol when you're taking over a planet. You say, take me to your leader. <clears throat> Most times it didn't actually work out, especially when Marvin tried it out on a parking metre. Uh, I think he just appreciated the helmet. But I wonder what the outcome would have been if Marvin had landed in ancient Israel in the time of the judges and made that same demand, take me to your leader. Because we've been watching the last few weeks as things in ancient Israel spiralled down in an endless cycle of anarchy. Anarchy is a word that literally means no leader. Israel, it was meant to be God's special possession. Israel, it was meant to be unique among the nations. Uh, Israel are ones who are meant to display God's righteousness to the nations around them and drive out the evil of the idol-worshipping, child-sacrificing pagan nations without becoming like them. What's going to happen at this point if if Marvin the Martian were to land in his flying saucer and say, take me to your leader? Where would he be taken? Especially if it's in the hill country to the north. Now, before we answer that question, and the answer won't surprise you, I just want to take a moment to think back to something Gideon said. We met him a few weeks ago. When the people asked him to be king, do you remember? Something in all the wrongs he did, that Gideon got profoundly right. It's back in Judges chapter 8, the people of Israel come to him and say, Gideon, you're a great bloke, rule over us, be our king. And verse 22 in Judges chapter 8, they say, rule over us, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon says, no, I won't. I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. See, Gideon actually gets it. Israel is odd. Because at at the centre of Israel, there isn't a palace for a king. At the centre of Israel, there is a tabernacle for their God. And in the tabernacle, there is no carved idol made of silver or tin, Because the God of the universe, the unmade, uncontainable creator God, the God who is way bigger than that, he is the one who rules over Israel and no one and nothing else. No idols to bow down to, no human king. Israel is meant to be different because Israel's king is God himself The Lord will rule over you and be your king. Now, it might be a little bit hard for our imaginary Martian friend to get his head around. Serving a God and king they couldn't set their eyes on, that they couldn't put their hands on. Look, it mightn't have made much sense to an interplanetary visitor. The sad fact is it didn't make much sense to the Israelites either. And so we come to the final chapters of Judges where there is a sad refrain which takes us through, as we'll see next week, to the final words of the book. Uh, You get the first taste of it here in chapter 17, verse 6. 
Marvin says, take me to your leader, here's the reply. We don't have one. We just do what we like. See it in 17 verse 6. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In, In another translation, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And just look down the page a little, you get it again, chapter 18, verse 1. In those days Israel had no king, no one in charge, most especially not their God. Uh, And so what is life going to look like in an Israel like that? That's what we get to find out in the two strange episodes that end the book. Today Micah in the hill country of Ephraim, uh, Micah who as we meet him, He's in the middle of confessing to his mum that he's stolen the family nest egg. But now he's giving it back. We're talking 13 kilos of silver, which I checked on this week's prices would be worth just over $16,000. She's noticed it was missing, as you would. She's been cursing about it, as you might. And all along it was Micah, her son. He says to her, I have it with me. I took it which is a strange introduction to the guy, but that's how things go in a land where everyone does as they see fit. Stranger still, when he brings it back, his mum blesses him and gives it back to him. And strangest of all, look at what she says, verse 3. At first it sounds so pious, doesn't it? When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. So far, so good for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I'll give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, verse 4, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol that was put in Micah's house. And so Micah sets up a shrine and he makes an ephod, a priestly chest piece, and sets up some household gods and installs one of his own sons as a priest which if you can't spot it already, is all kinds of wrong. Does that need to be said? It's out and out idolatry, which started off with his mum saying, I'm going to consecrate my silver to the Lord, which sounded so reasonable. Now, look, here is a fun fact. Just in the last few weeks I've been reading in the news, uh, there has been an archaeological discovery. It's a terracotta face, which they've speculated is from a household god figurine and the big headline was asking is this the face of God Yahweh the God of Israel because they found it you see in an excavation in Israel in the time of the judges in exactly the sort of area we're reading about and and the archaeologists are saying it is exactly like the sort of God figures you find in other places outside Israel which is weird they say because Israelites were not meant to do that stuff according to the second commandment Israelites were meant to not make idols and bow down to them and to serve God alone and be different. So how do you reckon they're going at that? In those days when God was meant to be their king, they have no king. Verse 6. Everyone does as they see fit, what's right in their own eyes. But look, in verses 7 to 13, it gets even more bizarre because Micah gets to upgrade his household priest from his little son 
to a genuine Levite who's passing by from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, the Levites were the tribe whose birthright it was to look after the sacrifices in the, in the tabernacle, the real one. And now here's Micah in verse 10, offering a genuine Levite passing by a job at 10 shekels of silver a year with a food and clothing allowance as well. And Micah installs him, which is what you do with a bishop or a priest or a new TV set or a fridge, uh, and it's, it's all good, he's installed. And Micah says in verse 13, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Now do you notice it is God on tap. It's not Micah serving his God and king, it's God domesticated to serve him with his household idols and his private priest and now God is guaranteed to give him good outcomes because he's got him in a box. See, the land where everyone does what's right in their own eyes can still look very religious. But remember, in those days, Israel had no king. And we're reminded of that again, if you'd forgotten, in chapter 18, verse 1. And so let's watch as things get even worse. Watch the rot spread from this one guy in the hill country to a whole tribe of Israel and an enduring legacy that runs right through hundreds of years of their history up ahead. It's the tribe of Dan. And they're still looking for their own slice of the promised land to settle down in. Chapter 18, verse 1, they're still looking for a place of their own to settle because they haven't yet come to an inheritance among the tribes. So they've sent out spies. They've come to the hill country of the tribe of Ephraim where Micah lives. They spend the night at Micah's place And they chat to the young Levite who's working as Micah's private priest who in verse 6 blesses them. The five spies go on ahead to Laish and they figure it's a good place to, to take over for themselves. It's isolated, it's prosperous. So the spies head back home, they gather up the other guys, they say we've found a place, let's attack them. We've seen their land, it's very good. It's all laid on for us, let's go. So 600 of them set out, 600 strong men. They camp the first night in Judah and then onto the hill country of Ephraim again and they're coming towards Micah's house where the spies had stayed before. And verse 13, the spies say, hey guys, that house over there, that guy has got an ephod and he's got household gods and he's got a carved image and a carved idol overlaid with silver. We're at the end of verse 14, if you want to check in on there. They say, you know what to do. Which they would if they were thinking of the commands of Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 13, where he warned about exactly this situation. Warned them about idols creeping into Israel. There are a few verses from Deuteronomy. I'll put them on the screen because they're worth reading. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that troublemakers have arisen among you and have led the people of the town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known, then you must inquire, probe and investigate it thoroughly. That's what you must do first. And if it's true and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword 
all who live in that town. He must destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. And then the Lord will turn from his fierce anger and show you mercy and will have compassion on you. He'll increase your numbers as he promised on oath to your ancestors because you obey the Lord your God by keeping all his commandments that I'm giving you today and doing what is right in his eyes. Now, I know there's a lot of God talk going on in Micah's house. It all started when his mum said, I'll consecrate my silver to the Lord. Let's make an idol with it. But the Lord says, that's, that's not what I want. That's idolatry. What, is, what I want is your hearts and your obedience. I want you to do what's right in my eyes, not what's right in your eyes. Men of Dan, when you find a house full of idols, you know what to do. God says, trash the place in righteous judgment. Have nothing to do with it. The way to blessing isn't to make your own gods. It's to honour the real God. Except they don't. They say, hey, that's a nice set of idols. Hand them over. Give your idols to us. And we'll take your priest as well. The priest says, hey, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Verse 18. They say, be quiet. You're coming with us. And you'll be our father and priest. Isn't it better to serve a whole tribe and clan of Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? And when he hears that, the priest in verse 20 is very pleased. Why wouldn't he be? What a promotion. He takes the ephod and he takes the household gods, he takes the silver idol and off he goes with the tribe of Dan to be their tribal priest with their household gods in a classic case of what they call domesticated religion. Micah, of course, isn't so happy. He rounds up some of his local mates and they chase after them. Uh, The Danites laugh. They say, what's the matter with you? Did you call out your men to fight? Micah says, verse 24 again, such telling words. What do you think is the matter with me? You took the idols I made. You took my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? You took the gods I made. The source of my protection, my only hope for blessing. Doesn't that say it all? What else do I have? Well, as an Israelite, you've got a covenant with the unseen Lord who made the heavens and the earth, who's offering you blessing in the promised land. Is that enough for starters? But verse 27, after he realises the Danites are too strong, he goes home dejected, lost his hope. And then they took what Micah had made, just one more reminder, And they head for Laish where the people were at peace and secure and they crushed them. And there, verse 30, the Danites set up for themselves the idols and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of captivity of the land and they continued to use the idols Micah had made the whole time. Take me to your leader. Well, here he is, this little silver guy in this little wooden shed with his private team of priests running around to serve him. 
And you notice that unnamed Levite who's been anonymous up till now, it's actually Jonathan, a direct descendant of Moses, which is maybe the saddest thing of all. See, that's life in a land with no king. And as we'll see next week, it's a pretty dark place to be and a future already flagged in verse 30 that's heading for a bad ending, the captivity of the land. Here they are, the very start of the story. And we're already being told that these guys in the hill country, the tribe of Dan, of the nation of Israel, they will be idol worshippers all the way through their history until God sends them into exile. Uh, It's all there. If you ever look at our little timeline picture, it's all there in the pictures. God's crown upended, in particular those northern tribes as they head towards exile, the first to go. And so when archaeologists are digging around 3,000 years later, they'll be finding little bits of broken idol saying, I thought Israel was meant to be different. What they need, of course is a profound change of heart. What they need is they do need a king who can lead them in God's authority to serve him from the heart, who will perhaps even take on himself their due punishment, even destruction, pay their penalty and somehow bring them to a whole new way of living. That's what they need and that in fact is where the Bible story is heading as it runs relentlessly towards the new covenant, the better covenant and the Lord Jesus. And that's that's the part of the story where we get to be included, invited to live as part of God's new covenant people under the rule of King Jesus who the New Testament calls the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I want to finish up this morning by asking you the obvious question. As one of God's new covenant people, if you are one at this point, as one of God's new covenant people, what you'd say if little Marvin turns up and says to you, take me to your leader? Because who is it, really? Not just in theory, but in practice. See, if in practice you've got no king, you'll just spend your life doing whatever it takes to please number one. And functionally, number one is you. Albert Einstein once said, E equals MC squared. Uh, Yeah, he did. But apart from that, he also said some stuff that's, that's slightly easier to understand. It was 1915, he was Jewish and he was asked his opinion of the Great War which he and a lot of people argued was fuelled by a form of violent nationalistic Christianity. A similar maybe to some of the attitudes we see in America today. Albert Einstein, what do you think of all this? His reply was three pages long and very detailed but at the end of it he said, why so many words? He said, I could say it all in a single sentence. He said, as a Jew, here is what I would say to Christian Europe. Honour your master, Jesus Christ. Not only with words and songs, but rather foremost 
three deeds. Now, it's not rocket science, is it? Jesus, our master, not just in words and songs, but in our deeds. Christianity in practice, even when it's costly. Submitting ourselves to a king whose coronation was on a cross, a king demonstrated to be king in his resurrection. If you've got no king in your own personal anarchy, you will do just exactly what you feel like and your life will end up looking something like the mess that's the ancient nation of Israel. For all of us, me included, it's very easy to pay lip service to the fact that that you've got a king and yet the reality that you live out is far different. In the book Puberty Blues, Gabriel Carey tells the story of growing up in the, the beach culture of Cronulla in the late 1970s. She said, when I wrote the book, people were surprised to hear how young surfy girls were when they started having sex in the back of panel vans at Cronulla Beach. And she said, it wasn't just the surfy chicks. Get this bit. Our arch rivals, the Christian fellowship nerds, were doing exactly the same. See, no different words and songs, not deeds. It's more than that sort of stuff, though. It's everything. I was talking to someone yesterday. When they bought their house a few years back, the solar panels were promoted by the agent as a feature. Huge savings on your power bills. Trouble is, when they moved in, they found the solar panels just didn't work. They still don't. Now they're selling again and slightly agonising over the fact that in, in spite of the fact that the house looks like it's got solar panels, because they've got a real king, the Lord Jesus they will actually have to be honest in their advertising and say, no, it doesn't actually work. It's just a small thing, but kind of hard. You know, that's what they'll say. Because while the last sellers didn't have integrity, Christians are different. Because Christians have a real king. And having a king makes all the difference in the world to how we live our lives in the way we refuse to bow down to anything else, the way we refuse to look for blessings elsewhere or make our gods with our own hands, the way we refuse to redefine or contain or constrain the real God to suit ourselves. We'll just do and say what's convenient. It would be tragic, wouldn't it, if not so much Marvin the Martian, but if, if the world around looked at you, looked at us, and said, no, there's no king there. Everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. Friends, let's make every effort and make it our prayer with the help of God's spirit that that may not be so.